This Choircast podcast episode is brought to you by Apostates Anonymous, the show you turn to when you're no longer an evangelical, or even a Christian. Join hosts Matthew J. DiStefano and Keith Giles as they tip over just about every sacred cow known to man. You're sure to have a good time, if you're a heathen or heretic or apostate or reprobate. If you're an evangelical, maybe you won't have such a good time. But either way, we want you to listen. You can check out Apostates Anonymous wherever you get your podcast fix. Now, on to the show. Welcome to the Wild Olive Podcast. Game-changing conversation about literature, culture, and the Bible. Today we're talking about Rainer Maria Rilke's Book of Hours, Love Poems to God. I'm your host, Jean Patrol. And I'm your other host, Jennifer Bird. Jennifer. Hey, Jean. (laughs) Good meeting you again here. Yes, likewise. And hi, listeners. We have a beautiful poem to share with you. Rainer Maria Rilke has a collection called Book of Hours, Love Poems to God, translated from German into English by Anita Barrows and Joanna Macy. Rilke, who lived from 1875 to 1926, was an Austrian poet one of the most prominent modernist writers of the early 20th century. In addition to poetry, Rilke wrote a semi-autobiographical novel entitled The Notebooks of Malta Lords Briggs. He became well known for his Letters to a Young Poet, a collection of ten letters he wrote to a 19-year-old admirer, published after Rilke died. Rilke's work explores Greek mythology, Christianity, love, and the quandary of being a sensitive person in a brutal but beautiful world. He was raised Catholic, and he later rejected Catholicism and lived his spiritual life outside of organized religion, pursuing his religious interests through the practice of writing. Book One, Poem Four, from Rilke's Book of Hours, explores how some portrayals of God actually get in the way of relating to God. We're going to hear the poem, and then we're going to talk about what theorists call the problem of representation, and we'll talk about it as it pertains to the idea or the experience of God. And we're going to circle back to Jennifer's book, Permission Granted, because she talks in there about issues of representation, particularly as it pertains to representing God in the Bible. Jennifer's chapter, Cover-Ups and Edited Stories, has a lot about that. But first, let's listen to the poem. Jennifer, would you like to read? Yes, I would. Here's Love Poem to God, Volume 1, Poem 4. From Rilke's Book of Hours. We must not portray you in king's robes, you drifting mist that brought forth the morning. 
Once again, from the old paint boxes, we take the same gold for scepter and crown that has disguised you through the ages. Piously, we produce our images of you till they stand around you like a thousand walls. And when our hearts would simply open, our fervent hands hide you. Thank you. So, the way I understand it, Rilke's poem calls us to consider what lots of people call the problem of representation. This tricky fact that there's a gap between reality and people's ways of representing or describing reality. So, we experience reality, whatever that might be, Mm -hmm. and then... We package our experience in language, image, story, and idea in order to communicate. And during the process of communication, experience itself gets mediated by whatever means of representation we're using to describe the experience. So a representation of the experience is not the same thing as the experience itself. Jennifer, is that how you understand the poem? Yes, I think I do think of it that way. I also think of, because I'm quite drawn to the ideas around what has historically been happening, what people have been doing. And so I see in there this really interesting nod or critiquing tradition or critiquing the repetitive ways that people do talk about God and put into our rituals, you know, this we reinstate these ideas every week. I keep thinking of language, all the different language that we use to talk about God, right? And I I love that line, once again, from the old paint boxes, we take the same gold. There's nothing wrong, right, with how things have been done in the past, but sometimes that can keep us from being sensitive to someone's experience that might be outside of those boxes, right? Right. Right. Exactly. Sometimes you want a new paint box. Colors, exactly. (laughs) Give me some new colors. Maybe I want to use a sponge instead of a paintbrush. How perhaps, and maybe I think given Rilke's experience, which I'm only vaguely familiar with, but there's something in that for him that he perceived it as keeping people from authentic um, expressions of whatever kinds of authentic experiences he or others might have. And I also really like that image of God being surrounded by not our praises or our thanksgiving or whatever that comes out of various spiritual settings, but more of walls that are actually keeping us from accurately or getting to God, right? I think think that's an interesting image. Yeah. I I do too. The idea that our language— and our images right. might actually obscure God rather than mm-hmm. reveal God. Mm-hmm. Very interesting line of thinking. Listen, you say something really interesting at the end of chapter six. Thank in you. Granted. <laughs> now, <laughs> after, <laughs> after talking about some of the Bible's scarier stories, mm-hmm. and there are some terrifying terrifying stories um, where, I mean, God is acting like a tribal warlord, and that's that's really scary, right? Or it is for some people. Um, 
So after you're talking about some of those really scary stories, you say, and this is a quote from you, I do not think that God is actually full of threats and wrath, but that is how God is being depicted. This is another one of those moments where it is helpful to be able to say that some of Scripture reflects human ideas more than those of God. The thought of people worshiping a God who literally scares people into loving him concerns me. It is also unsettling that people find a way to defend this depiction of God just because it is in Scripture. Mm-hmm. That's the end of the quote. So that that's what you say. And I see from that statement why the Rilke poem really resonated with you when you heard my episode about it when I was doing the Bible in Modern Literature. I was wondering, would you want to pick one wrathful God story and explain how it might be possible to understand that story without accepting an idea of God as wrathful? (laughs) As, you know... I know which which story to choose. Go for it. And I think the one that that's first jumps into my mind honestly is thinking about the way God is depicted leading the charge into the land that Abraham and his descendants were promised, which is why we call it the promised land. But it's a land that's already full of people, mm-hmm. right? Generally referred to as the Canaanites, but then they're sometimes referred to by their smaller tribal names but in the in the Joshua narrative god god is telling them to go into town after town and destroy everybody sometimes god says well you can keep the booty from this town or you can keep the women and children if you want but but time after time god is telling them to go do this and it's because it was what god promised to them and in my mind that also connects to earlier pieces of the the story, biblically speaking, but because it's been planted in various parts of the story that God has promised them this land. And there are so many people that I know, and I used to not think about it conscientiously, but now I do. And so it's it can be startling when you encounter a person who just has, who doesn't really seem to have a problem with this part of the narrative. It's what God promised. There are elements of the story that somehow justify this because they worshiped other gods. And that gets into a whole nother conversation, right, about religious beliefs and correctness and judging others for being different. But you know, I know of plenty of people in the Christian tradition, at least, who are very comfortable with that depiction. Instead of what I would like for people to do is to be able to see that this is a narrative for a group of people who didn't have their own place to be. And this is a narrative that says God is on our side. God wants us to be able to thrive or in this case, perhaps, we would like to be able to thrive. (laughs) Therefore, we are worshiping a God who's on our side and is going to help us do that. Somehow, all of the violence and almost, you know, the, the city after city of destroying people and killing everybody and killing the king and doing all these things, you know, you can look at that and, and see that this comes out of a need or a desire to be established as a people, to be respected as a group of people instead of being thrown back and forth by various groups of people in control in the area. I'm not sure that I can fully get rid of or talk away 
the violence in that story because it is still violent <laughs> and it has and it has been used to justify yes. all kinds of uh, atrocities over the centuries but i think that looking at it as, yes. a, as a in some way a story that a group of people wanted or needed or at least the leaders of that people wanted or needed i think can be helpful and does that address a little bit of what you're asking for yeah it does. And I wanted to elaborate on what you said a little bit. I'm like you. I there's I have to do something with all the violence in that story. It's not possible for me to worship a deity that orders right. genocide. That's not possible for me. So that part of the story, if I take it literally and don't do any contextualizing or trying to understand what parts of the story are human and if there is something in there of the divine. Unless I try to do that, I simply can't relate to that concept of the divine. Especially, I mean, you made reference to what terrible things have been perpetrated using that story as the ideological underpinning. And of course, I'm thinking mm -hmm. of the doctrine right. of discovery for the Americas, where the church actually put in writing this papal bull that Europeans, in this case, Portuguese, were absolutely entitled to take this land and that God was on their side because the people living in this land, the indigenous people of the Americas, the, the, it's. I don't even like to say it, but the phrase in that papal bull is they are enemies of Christ. So they're not followers of Jesus. They're not Christians. They don't recognize the authority of the church. And so they are enemies of Christ. And so, and it's in writing, you can take their <laughs> land, you can take their stuff, you can take anything you want, and you can enslave them because they're enemies of Christ. And so that's an example of the promised land story being used in an incredibly pernicious way. I want to acknowledge that. At the same time, when I think of that, particular story. When I think about it as a metaphor, I do think that there are useful principles in there for the conduct of spiritual life. So hmm. this idea that there is some kind of a greater wisdom or some kind of a greater power that people could access when they are facing really enormous challenges. I mean, I think the, the core idea is this idea that when you're facing something insurmountable. And it's usually, I, I think that happens every day. We have, like, I have, I, I think maybe everybody has, like, these battles that you face every day that require kind of a power, a strength, a wisdom that's really beyond you. And I think the message of the story is that you could attempt to relate to God and you could find more strength, you could find more courage. But, I mean, I realize it's so tricky because the the surface of the story is this war story with a lot of violence. And so I guess the piece I want to keep is the idea that when we're fighting our daily battles, there's a wisdom and a power and a strength that's beyond us that we could access. But I get it. Like mm -hmm. all too often, people think that means, oh, I get to do whatever I want here because 
God is on my side. That is a dangerous idea. That that idea that God exactly. is on my side is and a dangerous idea. I think my very quick follow up is: Isn't there a less violent way to <laughs> to communicate the the kind of the truth or the standard or something? The the example there um, at the heart of it for you. But yes, the idea that God is on our side permeates quite a bit of the Hebrew Bible, and one could say. The second, the Newer Testament as yeah, well, but that's a digression. Yeah, I, so, I understand. Yes. <laughs> um, so let me shift yeah. a little bit. Yeah. And I was just curious to know, you and I both know, there are a lot of different ways that God is represented in the Bible. There's some really nice ones, like a hen gathering her brood <laughs> under her wing. That's pretty nice. A wind moving over the surface of the water. Or I'm also thinking of the Gospel of John chapter 3, and I love that idea of, again, a wind. You don't know where it comes from. You don't know where it's going. It's this kind of wind and spirit idea. I was reading the story of Hagar recently, and God is represented as water in the desert. Uh, the story of Elijah represents God as a still small voice. Th- those are nice, right? Th- those are really nice, like <laughs> right representations are, of God. Work with that. I mean, imagine if like all of American history had been like had emerged out of a God concept, not from the story of Joshua, but from that image of a a hen gathering her brood under her wing. Wow, that would have been really a different history. But those nicer God concepts, less violent, more peaceful, they didn't stick as much as that king image. And I'm just wondering, why do you think that that idea of the divine as like a king or a lord stuck so well in intellectual history? I think... I think it's because of several factors, right? Or many, more than I'm sure I'm aware of. But I think that part of it is a, a king or a lord we can mm. a little bit more easily relate to, right? As a form of a human. I think, you know, I, I'm not interested in bashing men here, but I do think that there's an element of who are the people who've been in charge, mm-hmm. relatively speaking. Speaking, primarily speaking, however you want to say, predominantly men have been in charge of the church and in charge of nations and in charge of, you know, just so this element of Mm -hmm. the, the patriarchal element that is a part of all of those institutions or pieces of our world, you know, have a tendency to be. Um, drawn to a particular form of power or, you know, conform to, maybe I should say, particular forms of power that are very, that are dominant versus mutuality driven. And so I think, you know, I don't, you know, I start to kind of question, you know, well, how conscious are people of these things? And, and, well, maybe it's just because sure, it was sure. more familiar. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, there are people um, living in a monarchy I think, are writing right? a story, right? So, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. What do you think? Do you, what do you, do you think otherwise or in addition to that explains that? I agree with what you said that if something is being written in a patriarchal structure, it, it will also 
reflect that patriarchal structure that seems like definitely true to me. And also, I, I do agree with you that many people attempting to describe their experience of God or attempting to have an experience <laughs> of God, I think that for many people, thinking of a person like anthropomorphizing helps some people. For me, it's actually easier if it's not anthropomorphic. <laughs> the, the wind, that, that's easier for me. Or to think of a nurturing, gathering energy, that mm -hmm. is easier for me. That's an easier thing to relate to. But yeah, I, I do agree. I, I think intellectually it's been so sticky over the course of intellectual history because we've had so much monarchy yeah. and we've had so much hierarchy. Exactly. And as the church formed as an institution, it formed within the structure of hierarchy and monarchy. And so we're, we're left with it. We're left with a language that reflects that and images that reflect that. Yes. Yeah. And, and it's interesting to me, too, because you say that the non-human form images or ideas work better for you. And they do mm. for me as well. And mm. even as you were just talking about, you know, the, the way the church was formed and structured. And I just think of those early moments where women's experiences, perspectives, and contributions were being kind of categorically minimized or eliminated or silenced. And so you're taking away from the structure and the ideas a part of humanity. <laughs> and I think that there's, you know, to everyone's detriment, we lost this kind of a an an element of what is stereotypically, I don't think it's across the board, right? But in general, a more um, female or feminine ways of talking about power or talking about life and talking about nurture, you know, these ways of being that are also quite powerful, right? But they are also empowering more than dominating. Um, so I think it's really interesting that that this intellectual history or however you want to talk about it is, is happening in parallel with these other parts of our lives. Yes. Yeah. I will add to that. And this is, this will take things into the personal. I, I do have other, um, I have some texts that we could look at that I sure. think also relate to this King idea, but, but I wanted to, I want to confess <laughs> that <laughs> I, conceptualize the divine as a wind, a nurturing energy, a process, uh, something that is completely beyond language and image when I'm in a good place. When I'm really scared, huh. my concept of God is dad. Fascinating. It, it, I, go, I go back to father and dad if I'm really scared. And when I realized that, when you were speaking and I was really articulating a process theology and realizing, yeah, Gene, what you really go back to when you're really scared or desperate is dad. But that's because I had and have this awesome dad. Mm -hmm. Like I remember I got stuck in a tree once and I was super, super scared. I thought I was going to fall. I was holding on as as hard as I could. And... 
What did I do? I, I called for my father. And I yelled at the top of my lungs, Dad, Dad, what does he do? He comes blasting off of the sofa Aww. into the woods, barefoot, oh. and rescues me. Mm-hmm. I drop into his arms. And so I think like at, wow. a, at, a, bo- at a body level and at my core, like father is there as this rescuing, protective presence. So it comes back. Right. And that's a yeah. beautiful example and beautiful story to inform the way you think about dad, whatever, yeah. whoever that is. Hey, this is Matt Byrne, editor and producer for the podcast. Just popping in with some questions for you to consider while you listen. First, what God concepts appeal to you? What God concepts alienate you? Second, if you were raised with a particular God concept, how has that God concept changed over time? If the idea of God feels too weird for you as a way of thinking about the sacred, what feels like a friendlier way of thinking about it? Where and how do you experience a sense of the sacred? That's all for me. Now, let's get back to the show. So, thinking of the Rilke poem also, and I'm, I thought I was, I should answer my own question if I ask why is that king image so sticky. I also, I will also point out, as you and I both know, that in the Gospels, Jesus is always talking about the kingdom, the kingdom, the kingdom, the kingdom of, of yep. heaven. Yep. But what I think is really cool about the way that Jesus talks about the kingdom is that he never uses the same metaphor. He proliferates metaphors and allegories of the kingdom like all get out. Like yeah. the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. The kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls. Kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea, right? All yeah. these different metaphors, mm-hmm. which tells me he is gesturing at something that is beyond language that's hard to talk about. And I think varying the metaphor could be very helpful sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. I I also like that the many of his parables are very everyday life mm-hmm. things. Yeah. Some of them I you know, we we don't need to get into all of all of them, but I I do like that so many of them are things that we can all relate to. The process of yeast and how that works in bread is, how do you ex- describe that or talk about that? But we know that yeah. it does something. It lifts and it multiplies and it does these things, right? Yeah. I wanted to ask you about some of the theophanies. And I just want to pause here. If there's yeah. anybody listening who hasn't heard the word theophany, I bet you've heard the word epiphany. So epiphany, like a sudden realization a kind of sudden revelation. A theophany is like an epiphany, except it's theo, it's God, like a, and a you know, sudden realization about God or a sudden experience of God, a theophany, a, a sense of an encounter with God. And I'm really interested in theophanies, and I wanted to ask you about your take on theophanies where... Like, I noticed this pattern, and it's across many different biblical texts. 
that in the context of doing something really ordinary, suddenly a person, the character in the story, has this sense of encounter with God. So like the example I would give is the Oaks of Mamre. So in the story, it says like God came to talk to Abraham one day, but then as the story goes on, it just starts describing Abraham serving bread and making cakes for some strangers. And then the story just morphs into Abraham talking about God. And there are a lot more examples, but you saying that the ordinary elements of the parables really appeal to you. And I just wonder what you would want to say about something like the Oaks of Mamre scene where something ordinary is going on. Some strangers come to your tent, you make some cakes, you give it to them and whoa, all of a sudden they're God or they morph into God or it is very associated with a God encounter. Hmm. You know, I don't, I don't relate to those. I think I want to, or, or I think I would, I would like to be able to appreciate them more. I think I struggle where, where my thoughts are with that is what is, what is going on that they're trying to describe and, and why is it that they needed it to be revealed that this is God? Like what? And so I think I have a much more skeptical view of theophanies than, say that you do or that many people do who find them really interesting. I think I'm I'm a little bit turned off by them because maybe because I've never experienced it. Um <laughs> I guess I I like the idea that if there's any experience of God to be had it's in the ordinary. That's what I like. Okay. That's what I like about those stories that it's in serving someone or mm. um or gardening. There's that really funny story. Oh, gosh. I, I hope I don't sound blasphemous. I think it's a really funny moment when one of the Marys is at the tomb and starts talking to the risen Jesus, but she doesn't recognize him. Mm-hmm. And she says, then she kept talking to him, supposing he was the gardener. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Well, who else would it be? Right? <laughs> <laughs> and I like that idea that if there's any experience of the divine to be had, it's going to be happening in the middle of your ordinary everyday life among the people that you're dealing with every day, that it's not in the temple necessarily or in the church necessarily or in the confession booth or at the altar, that it's wherever you are. All of a sudden this glimpse, this other, I don't know, other realm, the kingdom of God, right? It's this other level of reality, and it's mixed right in to everyday life. I like that. I like that type of concept. Hmm. I think when I when we have this this particular idea on the table, I'm thinking of the everydayness as as being a part of, or as a place, a space where you can consider this to be um, an expression of love, which is of God. And you mm-hmm. can consider that serving a meal. You could see that through the eyes of this realm. Um, and I think that that's where 
our perception on it is what matters. Whereas when I, and I, I think this is, I don't know if this is from my training or my upbringing or both, but when I read these stories that have some form of God being appearing, I think of them as being much more jarring in the story than what I've heard you just describe. So I think maybe I'm trying to say I, well, anyway, I, I think that there's, that's my skepticism about it is the, the yeah. This revealing of God in the everyday is really more about our own perception, I think, and how we perceive, you know, our connection to these people and our connection to each other. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I like that. Thank you. Yeah. You know, I, I do also want to comment on one other thing sure. before we move on. And and. I, you know, one of the things that I'm finding really interesting about this exchange is the language kingdom of God in general, because that just language that 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 perpetuates an idea of some form of hierarchy and mm-hmm. God, right? Even though, as you pointed out, Jesus says the kingdom of God is like <laughs> yeah. this long list that is not of hierarchies that come with kingdoms, but he's still using the language kingdom of God. So he's still perpetuating a framework for Mm -hmm. a hierarchy. And so that's, that's a a concern, I guess I could say of mine about scripture. Um, And so I didn't want to lose the moment to make that particular comment. Um, I think that there's something helpful about being aware of what the framework we're starting with. Yeah, and, I agree. Yeah. And I think that's probably also part of the problem of representation. Exactly. Like Jesus is facing the problem of representation right. as surely as any of us are. The fact that any language, any metaphor, any image of something that is immaterial right. is going to fall short of the thing that you're trying to describe. I think the problem comes when I don't have a problem with the image kingdom of God. Like I can, I, I, I think anytime I'm encountering language for religious experience, I'm already understanding that the word is not the thing, uh-huh. that the word is kingdom, but it's nothing like the thing. It reminds me of that, that painting by the modernist painter Rene Magritte and it's called This Is Not a Pipe. Ce n'est pas un pipe. Mm-hmm. It's in French on the painting. Um, this is not a pipe. And it's an image of a pipe. Right. It's a painting, a realistic painting of a pipe right? with the words painted, this is not a pipe. Right. So that's always my understanding when yeah. I'm reading any yeah. story, any metaphor, right? anything represented in language is like, okay, this is gesturing toward the thing, but this is not the thing. Right. So, yeah, go ahead. But the language and the framework kingdom of God is something that you will continue to hear Sunday after Sunday in a Christian context. And so it's still on a certain level, and maybe this is for people who are more literal-minded, like maybe I'm just too (laughs) literal-minded. But I find the language to be a hindrance, I guess, in this case, 
just like Rilke. Like yeah. that's exactly <laughs> what the poem is about. It right? is, isn't the, it? The yep. language builds walls instead of like giving us access to you. The language is building walls exactly. around you. Yes. Um, and I, I think a real problem of interpretation arises when there's no daylight. When when readers are reading it or they're encountering words like kingdom, king, throne. I, I mean, one phrase I hear a lot, and it's typically if I express worry about something, I'll have one of my beloved evangelical friends say something like, God is on the throne. And my <laughs> reaction is... Well, you know, I'm, I can't say my reaction is on the air. <laughs> but let's just say, let's just say, that's my internal reaction. Yes, I never say right, it out loud, right, but it's I understand. like, oh, you know, um, that's not helpful um, yeah, right. at all. So, but I think the the problem is when there's no daylight between like the metaphor that you're using to yes. attempt to capture yeah. your experience of the divine and the actual divine. I mean, I think it's actually an act of humility to understand that the language that I'm using, the metaphors that I'm using, the stories that I'm reading, right. the characters who are interacting with God in this story, that there's some daylight between what that is and what the actual thing is, which we don't know. We do not have like right. direct access to. Right. Right. Or if there are moments where we do, you know, I think of mystic mystical experience you know it's just sort of famously very beyond language to try to yes to describe yes. it so. yes well you know this leads to i did want to ask you this question sure. and yeah. i i think it might be a good place in the exchange to ask it okay why is this considered a love poem to mm. god thank you for asking that that's such a great question so i would say it's a love poem because it's an intimate engagement. I like the direct address. The setup for the poem is that the speaker is directly addressing the divine, you, right? Exactly. That has disguised you. We must not portray you in king's robes. We take this paint from the paint boxes that has disguised you piously. Mm -hmm. We produce our images of you. Right. When our hearts, and so it's this direct address to the divine, and so it's an intimate engagement and an intimate attempt to know, and an intimate attempt to try to surmount obstacles to relationship. And I think that's what mm. we do mm -hmm. when we're in love or when we are loving we know that there will be obstacles to communication, obstacles to relating. And when we love, we work hard to try to work through those and attempt to be closer and attempt to understand and attempt to know. So I think it is a love poem in that sense because Rilke captures his own attempt to love in the poem. Yeah. And the way certain things have been, have become the obstacles, right, to that yeah. love and to that knowing. I like, that was a really beautiful response. <laughs> I didn't know where you were going to go with that. That was really, I really like that. I'm glad. Well, in eliciting that from me, you also made me want to ask you about something. 
That line, piously, we produce our images of you, I know that that really stood out when you were engaging with the poem, and you thought it was similar to some of the language in the prophets when they channel, like, God's annoyance at yeah. their rituals. And I wonder yeah. if you, you want to just talk about that a little bit. You know, I sure. And actually, I, I want to make it short because I love what you just said. And maybe maybe we're wrapping this conversation up here. I think when I when I put that line, piously, we produce our images of you till they stand around you like a thousand walls. And I tried to work through, now, what is it I see as, how is it that that's a parallel to maybe my famous, my, my favorite prophet Amos, you know, where, you know, I despise your festivals, all these things that people do. Stop. Yeah. It's just, it's just yeah. disgusting in my sight. Yeah. Because it's not, it's missing the spirit of yeah. the, of the point, which at least for Amos is about justice and mm-hmm. right and righteousness. I would say rightness or, um, I like the word justice because <laughs> that works for me in their context as well as in mine, right? And ev- yeah, let justice roll down like water, and and you know, correct relating, um, mm-hmm. empowered relating like an ever flowing stream. I think I I don't know if Rilke was into social justice, right? I don't know if if he's if he was in trying to comment on that element. But I do think that there's a parallel here in that the authentic experience as human beings, for me, includes seeing what's happening around us, right? And being a part of celebrating the good and addressing what needs to be addressed. And I think that some of the obstacles to that have been some of the language that's been used to talk about God that keeps us from that just or right action. Yeah, I don't know. That, Maybe. That's very well said. Yeah. Um, well, it has been, we have been having a nice lengthy conversation. I know. Is there <laughs> anything else you want to add? I feel like, you know, we, we covered the things that I was most interested in talking about. Anything else you want to add? No, I, the same for me in our back and forth. We covered mm. what I was most interested in hearing you talk about. So lovely. Well, thank you. I'll see you again soon and talk to you again soon. Sounds good. Thanks for this conversation. Absolutely. Bye now. Bye. Thank you for listening to Episode 8 of the Wild Olive Podcast. If you enjoy game-changing conversations about literature, culture, and the Bible, subscribe for the latest episode and tell others all about Wild Olive. Nick Stubblefield composes our music, and you'll find episode notes at our website wildolivebibleandculture.org You can ask Jean or Jennifer a question by emailing connect at wildolivebibleandculture.org Thanks again, and we'll catch you next time.